Okay, so welcome to uh, Prophecy Night. This is our 22nd installment, and we've been going through a series of uh, topics that are setting the stage for the return of Christ. You know, Jesus told us in Matthew 16 to look for the signs of the times, and so the whole series is called uh, The Time Is Now, Why Bible Prophecy Matters Now More Than Ever, and we went through uh, several uh, topics uh, already on different, you know, ways the stage is being set, and we're going to shift gears tonight into uh, how the stage is being set geopolitically. But first, as is my custom, or at least has been recently, a little uh, humor. This Someone sent me this, which I thought was pretty pretty interesting, pretty profound. Uh, how can they have worsened? How can the math scores get worse? Well, it's pretty easy. They've added indoctrination. They've multiplied bias. They've subtracted the parents, and the result is the kids are better at division. And that really is what they're trying to do, is to divide us, to divide families, to divide kids from the families, make kids a ward of the state. Uh, but that was interesting. So tonight, this is our 10th topic. Uh, I didn't put the other ones in here, so I can't remember them all off the top of my head. But we talked about setting the stage prophetically, uh, economically, satanically, demonically, uh, several other uh, categories. But tonight we turn to geopolitically. Geopolitical relates to geographic and political influences on the world. Uh, so when you see that term geopolitical, it basically is you know, a broad term that refers to any type of na nation states and uh, alliances and things that are happening in global economies, things like the G7 and the World Economic Forum and all kinds of summits. Uh, but the ultimate culmination of geopolitical conflicts is always war. Uh, that's where it heads, and we're going to look before we dive into some of the uh, signs of the times at a biblical, some biblical examples of that. But the ultimate culmination is always war. Uh, if you go back, you know, 500 years before Christ, and you see Aeschylus said, "In war, truth is always the first casualty," and I think that's true. Nothing is ever as it seems, and uh, even the history books are not to be trusted. Uh, because they've been rewritten, uh, and they are posing a view of history, especially Western history, American history, that is simply not accurate. There is an alternative view to everything from, you know, the Span well, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, uh, the World War One, World War Two, all of the wars. There's more to the story. About a hundred years after Aeschylus was a more well-known Greek. Uh, philosopher Plato, he said, only the dead have seen the end of war. And uh, I think we need to remember that in a biblical worldview, wars will not cease until the Prince of Peace comes back and takes the throne. Uh, we can have all the peace talks we want and the peace summits, and we can have agreements and covenants and uh, all these treaties. But, you know, until then, only the dead are going to be the ones that see the end of war. Uh, the Luciferians, Satan's earthly accomplices, have used war throughout history in an attempt to accomplish their agenda. And Eric Arthur Blair, uh, better known as George Orwell, knew a thing or two about these nefarious global conspirators, and he once said, quote, all the war propaganda, all the screaming and lies and hatred comes invariably from people who are not fighting. And I couldn't help but think about that as I thought about the NATO summit that's going on today. I wonder if all those high-powered, you know, political leaders from different NATO countries really uh, think at all about the implications 
of the decisions they make. Uh, of course they don't. Of course they don't. Well, the Bible documents um, uh, the use of war for evil purposes, and it goes all the way back uh, to ancient times. Uh, for example, uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, 8th century B.C. prophet, uh, when Assyria had defeated the northern kingdom, Samaria, in 722 B.C., many of the Jews in the southern kingdom, the Judeans, remember the southern kingdom was Jerusalem was the capital, the northern kingdom was Samaria, and before the southern kingdom fell to Babylon, many of the Jews in the south began looking uh, to Egypt for help. And Isaiah, God's prophet, had warned them against relying on Egypt. In fact, he'd warned them against relying on any foreign powers. They needed to trust in God. And whatever people trust in place of God always disappoints them. That was a recurring theme in many of the prophets, but especially Isaiah. Trust in God. And they kept trying to find solutions to their problems uh, in other places. Um, Isaiah announced that Egypt's social, economic, and political world would come crashing down. It would collapse. And his whole point was that God ultimately controls the fate of nations. He controls the fate of their society, of their economy. Uh, uh, you know, you know po politics does not control that. And so he said, for example, here on the, on the screen, Isaiah 19.2, I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city and kingdom uh, against a kingdom. And then in Second Chronicles, we see an obscure prophet by the name of Azariah, the son of Oded, uh, who was telling the king of Judah, Asa, that God's people needed to remain faithful to God. Uh, and if they didn't, this, their long string of chaos and suffering would continue. They needed to return to God. And he said, in those times there was no peace to the one who went out nor to the one who came in. In other words, there was chaos everywhere. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the land. And again, we see, so nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. Well, now we fast forward to the eschaton, the end times, Bible prophecy, and we see a similar prospect. Haggai, the prophet, announced uh, through, you know, the, the Lord through Haggai announced to Zerubbabel that he would overthrow the thrones of the nations on earth someday, and he would bring to destruction all of the Gentile kingdoms. He would overthrow these Gentile armies coming against Israel by having them turn against each other. He says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overflow the chair, overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them, the horses and their riders shall come down. Everyone noticed by the sword of his brother. This is another reference to warfare, a battle. And this reminds me then of Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse when he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these, Jesus said, are the beginning of sorrows. Now this is a often misapplied passage of scripture. So let me contextualize it and make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here. Everything from Matthew 24, verse 4, the beginning of the sermon, on, I mean, of the Olivet Discourse, the very first words out of his mouth were, Be not deceived, let no one deceive you. From that first all the way to the end of chapter 25, the entire sermon that he preached atop the Mount of Olives, 
is related to Israel and the second coming of Christ. The rapture is not mentioned or referenced anywhere in the Olivet Discourse. Now, some Bible teachers disagree. I, I respect that. I'm not personally attacking them. I just think they're wrong, and the context makes it very, very clear. Jesus, the, the church had not even started yet. Um, the Jesus had spoken only once of the church, and that was back in Matthew 16 when he told Peter that in the future he was going to build his church, but it hadn't been built yet, and it wouldn't come into existence until 50 days after Christ's resurrection. So this was still a Jewish context, and indeed, Jesus in chapter 23 of Matthew had just told the Jewish leaders of their day, the first, the, the first century unbelieving Jewish leaders, that they would not see him again until they cried, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then uh, a few days earlier, that was on Wednesday, a few days earlier, a couple days earlier actually, he had ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and a splattering, a remnant of believing Jews had, had indeed cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that wasn't representative of the nation. That was just the remnant. The nation and the leaders cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus, knowing that was going to happen, uh, issues that scathing rebuke in chapter 23. Remember, he overturned the tables of the money changers. He curses the fig tree. It was a really climactic event leading up to that Thursday night in the garden when he was betrayed by Judas. And uh, so in chapter 23, he really has some harsh words to say for the Jewish leaders. And then the disciples who were at his side witnessing all this and who still, in spite of all of the repeated references that got clearer and clearer the further Jesus went into his three-and-a-half-year ministry still never quite connected the dots. They still really believed that the kingdom was going to come right then. In fact, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Luke tells us in uh, Luke 19, the day before the triumphal entry, that the disciples were on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and because they were near Jerusalem, they thought the kingdom was going to come immediately. They were coming into town for Passover. And Jesus told them a parable to dispel them of that notion. Anybody remember what the parable was that he told them? Call it the parable of the minas, uh, or sometimes the parable of delay. And that was Jesus' answer to their, knowing their thoughts, that they thought the kingdom was, was about to happen any moment. And he tells them this story about a king who goes away to receive a kingdom to a far land. And he's going to be away a long time. And while he's gone, he says to the, his servants, hey, be about my business. And he gives each of them a mina. Ten servants, one each. Gets, they each get one mina. Then he comes back having received the kingdom, and he holds them accountable for what they did with that mina. And that is a clear reference to the Bema judgment seat uh, and the church and what we're supposed to be doing as we await the return of the king. Um, by the way, somebody emailed me just today. I, I'm going to respond to them, but they were confusing the parable of the minas in Luke 19 with the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, which is part of the Olivet Discourse, which we're looking at right now on the screen. Two completely separate parables, two different meanings, two different audiences, two completely different contexts. In the parable of the minas, all of the servants get into the kingdom, even the one who squandered his mina and did nothing with it. He just gets no reward when he gets there. In the parable of the Minas, the, the one who doesn't get into the kingdom is the citizens. Remember, there's two groups. There's the servants of the king, and then there's the citizens who did not want the king to rule over them. That's unbelieving Israel, who within days of Jesus giving this parable would indeed crown him with thorns. 
And so the citizens are cast into outer, not outer darkness, but cast in where there's weeping and gnashing of feet, of teeth, and they're, that's hell. They don't get into the kingdom. But all of the servants do. It's just the more, the better steward you are in with what you've been entrusted while we await the Lord's return, the more rewards you're going to have in the kingdom. The higher positions of authority, the more crowns and those kinds of things. The parable of the talents, which is part of the, the uh, Olivet Discourse here, is only about Israel. And it's, it's three people instead of ten. It's talents instead of minas. And that's the only group that he's dealing with is the servants, which in the context refers to Israel, because Jesus is explaining in this Olivet Discourse how Israel has one final opportunity before the king returns to receive the kingdom. And they've been privileged. They've had a place of privileged position throughout Israel's storied history, but they've time and again rejected uh, the message of the prophets, as we read a moment ago, and uh, of Christ. And so, in that case, the man who does nothing with his talent is cast into hell, into outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he does not get in. That's very clear from uh, the context. So two completely different uh, parables. But Jesus, when the disciples were with him, and he's, you know, he's he's judging and and uh, rebuking and criticizing the the unbelieving Jewish leaders for their rejection of him, they start to get a little panicked, and they they can't figure out how, uh, you know, the kingdom is going to come in such an environment. And so you, if you compare the three accounts, which is Matthew 24 and 25, Luke, uh, 7, Luke 21 and Mark 13, uh, you see, you kind of see some, you fill in all the details. But the disciples nervously, as they're leaving the temple, they point to the temple and they say, oh, Lord, isn't this great? Look at all how magnificent it is. Look how beautiful the temple it is, as if to say, isn't it going to be great when you take the throne there someday? And remember what Jesus said? He said quite sternly, don't you understand? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. This is all going to be torn down. Well, Now the disciples are really hyped up. How in the world can he take the throne in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy and rule over a kingdom of peace when all the governments are upon his shoulder, as Isaiah said, if there's no temple? And so they ask him, Lord, well then, what's going to be the sign of your coming? When will this age end and the next one start? And that's when he tells them the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is completely in answer to the question of the second coming. When is Christ going to come back and inaugurate the kingdom? It has nothing to do with the rapture. So the phrase that you see here at the end of this verse, verse it's actually verse 8, that says uh, beginning of sorrows, uh, in some translations it's beginning of birth pangs. That phrase in the Old Testament is a technical term that refers to the seven-year tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel. So we are not experiencing birth pangs today. The birth pangs will last seven years leading up to the return of Christ in the same way that, as the metaphor implies, you know, birth pangs for a person who's with child might last you know, for some time before they finally uh, happen, uh, the birth finally takes place. So Jesus says, you know, just as when you start having labor pains, you know the birth is near. When you start seeing these signs I'm about to tell you, you know my return is near. We're within seven years. And then he, he gives more specific signs like the abomination of desolation, which means you're three and a half years away. And then, of course, the seal trumpet and bold judgments. The bold judgments all happen in the final few days of the tribulation in preparation for Armageddon. Uh, so uh, 
all of this relates to the tribulation. Nevertheless, if that's what it's going to be like during the tribulation, a global conflict, all kinds of wars and rumors of wars, then the closer we get to the rapture, which happens before this, the more signs of this type of thing we might see. So it's a, it's a subtle nuance there. I just want to be clear that we're not suggesting that the things we're going to talk about tonight are the birth pangs. They're setting the stage for the birth pangs. Like all of Bible prophecy, there is no Bible prophecy. We were just talking about this before we started tonight. There's not a single Bible prophecy in Scripture that must be fulfilled prior to the rapture. It's called the doctrine of imminency. We have a video on that. I have a chapter on it in my eschatology book, What Lies Ahead. Uh, it's a very important doctrine because uh, if you if you if the rapture's not the next great event on God's calendar, then you know it's not imminent. We 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 can pick a date. If you know, in other words, we could wake up today and say, well, such and such hasn't happened, therefore I know the rapture's not going to happen today, and that goes against everything the epistles tell us. Remember that word apekdekamai? We've talked about that before. It's used seven times in the New Testament. It's a verb. All seven times it refers to the rapture, and it says it means eagerly awaiting. Well, why would you eagerly wait for something that you know cannot possibly happen today? You're not going to. You only eagerly wait for something that could happen at any moment. That's why it's the blessed hope, and, and that's why it's you know we're to, to be expecting it. Uh, so, we're going to look at several, you know, geopolitical events here in a moment, but I want to continue with this look at war in the context of the eschaton, in the context of the end times. So let's go back to Zechariah the prophet. This is talking about the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, and all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. A, a, a great word picture there, you know. Anybody who thinks they're going to come against Israel, that's going to be like trying to pick up this stone, and it's going to actually end up causing you to throw your back out or something like that. Israel's going to be protected in the end times, ultimately. Um, Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it, it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Well, when is that going to happen? Now you skip forward to Revelation the end of the uh, bold judgments, or the vile judgments, is the way that King James described it, uh, or translated it. And it's going to happen in, a, in a, the hill called Megiddo, the plains of Megiddo, outside Jerusalem. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, and that battle is described at, in Revelation 19 in the context of Christ's return, where we read, And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, notice the capital H, that's Christ, who sat on the horse and against his army. Now back in verses 11 to 15 of chapter 19, the Bible describes Christ returning on a white horse, victorious, to tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God, with a sword proceeding out of his mouth, to take the throne and defeat anyone who was trying to defeat Israel. Uh, at the beginning of Revelation, and we've talked about this before, the first rider on the white horse that we see is in chapter 6, verse 2, and that's the false Christ, the Antichrist, and, and, and it's the first seal judgment. The, the, remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Apocalypse means revelation. The four horsemen are the first four seal judgments. The first one is the unveiling of the Antichrist. He's riding on a white horse too. But the text tells us he's just going out to conquer and declare war. That's what he wants to do. 
this time, and, and when you get all the way to chapter 19, at the end of the seven years, it's Christ, and uh, in, in earlier in this chapter, he's called faithful and true. The rider on the white horse this time is the real deal. He's not an imposter. And so the first thing he's going to do is capture the beast, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two, the beast and the false prophet, were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. When Christ comes back, Daniel describes it as destroying all of the other Gentile nations that had tried to destroy Israel and control Israel's land uh, throughout history, going all the way back to Egypt, Assyria, uh, you know, Babylon, Persia, the Medes, the Greeks, the Romans. Uh, and he describes this statue, remember, the, the King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, and Daniel interprets it. And he says, there's another stone that was cut without hands, meaning it's an eternal stone. It's not created. Uh, it's Christ. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of our Lord. He goes on to say, in the days of these kings, the, the kings of the revived Roman Empire, the ten-nation confederacy, uh, another uh, kingdom will be set up which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all the other kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. And that's the kingdom of our Lord. So uh, the kingdom is not now. I talked about that last night on a Theological Roundtable podcast that I did. That we're not living in a kingdom now world. Um, the kingdom will not come until the king comes. And the king's not going to come until the end of the tribulation at uh, the second coming. So I just wanted to kind of give you that biblical framework for what we're going to talk about uh, next as we talk about uh, geopolitical signs of the times, and, and it all relates to this concept of war. And the Luciferians have been trying to, uh, you know, conquer the world, the physical world around us, for millennia. That's what Satan's wanting to do. He's conspiring with human accomplices to take over God's created realm. The Luciferian conspiracy is thoroughly biblical. That's their name for themselves, Luciferians. It comes from Isaiah 14. Uh, and the conspiracy is Satan at the helm, working in uh, cooperation with his evil spirits in the unseen realm, and human beings like you and me, except they're, they're working at Satan's behest. That's world leaders and Satan worshipers and people like that. And so this conspiracy involves taking over the world. Well, how are you going to take over the world? Ultimately, it's going to require bloodshed. And so if you go back and look at real history, you find that many of the conflicts, the, the wars, and whether regional or global, have all have a, a dark underside that's really kind of uh, provoking them and dragging people into them. It's never about what it's about. Even, uh, you know, the story of Hitler and the Reichstag fire, you know, getting the Germany, uh, you know, it pulled in was a complete false flag. Uh, Vietnam, the Gulf of Tonkin, complete false flag, later admitted, by the way, 50 years later, after 58,000 Americans had died, American soldiers, um, never happened. The Gulf of Tonkin incident literally never happened. It was completely made up. So to, to you know, get people interested and behind and motivated to get America into that uh, terrible war. Uh, so, 
the first thing that they, so now let's fast forward to today. Obviously, uh, Satan has found out it's not quite as easy as he thought to take over the world. And uh, he keeps running into all kinds of problems because our God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind. That's really the theme of the book of Daniel, by the way. You know, you see the, the statue, you see the, uh, the different beasts that Daniel had the dream about. All of that is, is reminding us that God Almighty is in charge of the timetable. And, and it is going to climax in a battle of Armageddon, and then Christ is going to take the throne first for a thousand years on this present earth. But then after that, this present earth will be destroyed, the heavens and the earth, and it'll be recreated. And the Bible thus comes full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state in a sinless created realm uh, with only believers at that point. Uh, so, uh, you know, Satan has, from his perspective, he, he knows the Bible, but he doesn't believe it. So he's come very close at times through through the centuries and millennia to kind of ushering in an empire, whether that was, you know, Alexandria, whether it was uh, the, the Roman Empire, whether it was the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, others, um, and even in more modern times, you know, there have been pretty evil dictators. Hitler obviously comes to mind, Stalin, <laughs> uh, people like that. Uh, but he will ultimately, from his perspective, this is the devil I'm talking about, succeed for a seven-year period. He will indwell the Antichrist. It will be his man of the hour, and that evil uh, tyrant will rule this world for seven years at the behest of Satan. His sidekick or second in command will be the false prophet, and they will rule in, in those final seven years leading up to that battle of Armageddon. During that time, God's going to be outpouring his wrath on the earth. Satan's wrath, the book of Revelation talks about this, is going to be in play. The church is not appointed to wrath. We will be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. Doesn't mean we won't have to face horrific things. We're already in places experiencing horrific things. And for 2,000 years, the church has been persecuted and martyred. So don't let anybody ever tell you that the rapture is the view that the church will be rescued before things get tough. That is not only patently unbiblical, it's simply stupid. I mean, they don't know, they don't know history. Anybody who thinks that God's going to swoop in and rescue the church before things get bad is showing profound insensitivity to the brothers and sisters in Christ that have suffered the horrifically. Even in our day, think of the Coptic Christians a few years ago. And even today, we're told there are more martyrs for the Christian faith in the world today than in any other time in human history. So the rapture does not teach that God's going to rescue the church before it gets bad. It simply teaches that God's going to rescue his church before the 70th week of Daniel, before that seven-year day of God's wrath. First uh, Thessalonians 1, 10, and second and First Thessalonians 5, 9. So uh, it could very well be bad, and that's why I believe uh, that the, there's an urgency to the gospel, there's an urgency to teaching about this stuff, because we are seeing the stage set like never before in a profound way for this climactic battle. But right now, in this present age, what the Luciferians find themselves dealing with is the mightiest country in the history of the world that is still, in spite of all of our problems, which we're about to look at, uh, filled with a lot of God-fearing, Bible-believing, gun-toting Christian patriots. Um, and you can't just easily topple the United States of America the way they've managed to topple other countries. Now, they're working hard at it, and they're getting close. 
And if the Lord tarries his coming, it's quite possible that America will completely be destroyed before the rapture. We don't know. Uh, could very well happen. I've mentioned many times in prophecy conferences, has it ever occurred to you that you might be raptured as a Chinese citizen? And you ought to think about those things, right? God is, you know, America is not the new Israel. As mighty as we are and as, as much as God has used us and his fingerprints are all over this nation, um, that does not mean that he's given us some kind of divine protection. In fact, I think we long ago moved outside of the umbrella of his protection because of uh, the things that we're about to talk about. So as I think about geopolitical signs, I think about the prophetic uh, uh, war that's coming and and the way things are going to unfold in the end times as described in Scripture. And I couple that with what in their own writings and the things that they've been saying for many, many years that they want to do to bring down America. I, I'm looking for signs that America is in decline. Are we getting close to the end of America? As Naomi Wolf called it, what, I don't know, 20 years ago, I think I read that little booklet. Um, by the way, don't be afraid to read progressives and people that you might not share their worldview because just because they are not believers doesn't mean they don't have factual information. And so uh, you can learn a lot from histor about history from people that, you know, don't necessarily agree on our view of eschatology and things like that. Um, so uh, let's, we're going to look, uh, I've got seven signs that the stage is being set geopolitically. And I don't know how long this is going to take over the next several weeks, but tonight I want to just look at one of them, and that is the decline uh, of America. Um, you know, I can remember as a child, maybe you felt this way too, thinking often about what my life would have been like if I had been born in, you know, Africa or born in some third world country or born in another country of any kind. And I remember thinking how blessed I was, even as a kid. I don't know if I use that term blessed, but just thinking how cool it is that God chose to allow me to be born in the United States of America, right? And I think we, we all grew up that way, right? And sometimes that translates into what's often been called a mindset of American exceptionalism, where we tend to, to, to kind of think narrowly with tunnel vision just about our country, and we forget that God is a big God doing a lot of things in this world, and it's not just about the good old red, white, and blue. Um, but we are conditioned, I think, to think that America is the only great nation, and that somehow we can withstand anything. Um, it's you know, what, what, we, what we might call cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance, which I've talked about in my two recent two volumes, uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, is the mental disconnect experienced by an individual when confronted by new information that conflicts with our existing beliefs, ideas, or values. This cognitive dissonance, most often in my experience when I'm speaking and writing and talking to people in conversations, rears its ugly head whenever I begin to talk about the truth about America, the truth about the Republican Party, the truth about inside the Beltway, the truth about, you know, a lot of the, the mainstream historical narratives of the United States of America that people don't really understand. And it's gotten to be, you know, having studied this for so long and constantly in a mode of study, working on my next book right now, Spirit of the False Prophet, uh, that I continue to come up against things that I go, I, 
I mean, I should have seen it coming. I should have known that wasn't true. I should have known that didn't really happen that way. I should have known that he or she was not really a hero, and so forth, that there were ulterior motives. Um, so cognitive dissonance. Um, and then the other thing that you need to understand as we think through what's happening to our great country and try to break free of that American exceptionalism that just doesn't want us to believe things could be that bad, you know, that that's really what we're talking about here. With every fiber of our being, we want to believe that this these types of things would never happen in this nation. But I'm here to tell you they're happening. We're going to talk in a moment about, uh, you know, the military aspect of our country. And in just such a short time, right, Alan? It just seems like you blinked and all of a sudden it's, it's it's unbelievable what this country is doing, and that's by design. That's not a, you know accidental. It's not organic. There's people, evil people in dark smoke-filled rooms that worship Satan, sacrifice children, drink their blood, and are pulling the strings of power all over the globe to make way for Satan's man of the hour to come and take the throne. That's what's happening. Uh, the other thing then is normalcy bias. Uh, normalcy bias is essentially a coping mechanism psychologically that occurs when we're trying to register and sort out traumatic events or impending disasters. They go kind of hand in hand. Normalcy bias creates cognitive dissonance. You know, we've always believed this. This can't be true. Therefore, you know, when you tell me unexpected information, I, I'm not. I'm not going. I can't. Don't have a category for that. I don't have a place to put that. So I just sort of give you the old stiff arm and, and move on. And I can't tell you how many times I've come up against that. So we're talking about the decline of America as a symptom or sign of, uh, you know, geopolitical happenings as we get ready to see these this war break out. We are headed for World War III. There's no question about it. They're telegraphing it. They're writing about it. They're, you know, screaming it from the top of their lungs. They want war. It's just a matter of when God and his sovereignty allows it to start happening. But in light of what we've talked about, about warfare and the one world government that they're trying to usher in and how America is standing in the way of that one world government, um, we need to understand that America then really is the key to the new world order. America is front and center. Yeah, they're doing a lot of things. There's a lot going over on in Ukraine and Russia. Randy and I talk about that all the time on our World Events Update. Um, I've written articles about it. I spoke about it in Tulsa a year ago. Uh, there's things happening, obviously, in China. There's things happening in North Korea. There's things happening with Iran and, and Israel. Lots of things going on, all sort of interconnected with this plan to usher in a one-world system. But America is the key. When these Luciferian global elites get together, America is what they're talking about. They may talk about a few other things, but it always comes back to America. Because America is the financial leader of the world. Now, we're going to talk about how that's really no longer true, but they've propped it up to where it still has the perception, right, that it's the world leader. But that's slipping away. I mean, literally... Any day we could see this collapse. I'll come back to that. You know, um, we're the scientific leader. We have been the military leader, which is why, by the way, the Luciferians must, must, must obtain full control of our military resources. 
you know, we have unprecedented military technology. Um, yeah, China's there too. Russia too, by the way. Don't let anybody tell you they're not. Israel, thanks to us, but they're much smaller. Uh, but it's, this is, they just are salivating when they think of all of our military technology. They want it. They want to take control. America's the space leader, right? Uh, America's the medical leader. You know, uh, notwithstanding the Rockefeller takeover of medicine and the whole Western concept of slicing and dicing instead of holistic healing, uh, America still has pretty good medical technology. People fly here from all over the world to come and get medical treatment that they might not be able to have, experimental treatments and things like that in other parts of the world. America's the education leader. For you know, hundreds of years, hundred more than 100 years, people have sought to send their kids to America to get an education. Uh, America's natural resources. I mean, just think about the vast landmass that is this country and all of our you know, natural resources that the Luciferians would love to control. All of our infrastructure. You know, when we talk about World War III, they're not wanting to utterly wipe America off the face of the map the way, you know, the anti-Semites want to do with Israel. They're just talking about decapitating us. They want to bring us to our knees so that we abandon our national sovereignty and, and, and are forced to come on board the one world system. And there, who's to say how that's going to happen? There are so many ways. I was uh, on with Leo Homan yesterday uh, and, and talked about lots of different things that they're doing to kind of bring America down and, and force us into the one world system. Um, but absolutely one part of that's going to be war. Not the only part, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be war. So America is absolutely the key. So let's take a look and see what signs we can find that this great country of ours is in decline. And I just have four, and then that'll be it for tonight. We'll, we'll open the floor for questions. But the first category is morality. I mean, this really is so obvious that it scarcely needs mentioning, but morals, of course, are the prevailing standards of behavior that enable people to cooperate and work together. We believe, as biblicists, that the Bible provides the, the standard for morality. In other words, what does the Bible say is just another way of saying what is moral. The Bible is our moral standard for behaviors, thoughts, attitudes, those kinds of things. It's our guidelines. Well, over the past hundred years or so, in virtually every category, America's moral values have declined to the point of almost disappearing. I mean, we're fast approaching a state of moral anarchy, where, the, where anything goes, literally. And, and, and everybody, even if they're not a Christian, is aware of this, right? I mean, Gallup did a poll in 2022 that said 50% of Americans say the moral values in our country are poor, and another 37% said they're only fair. They also went on to say 78% of the people said the trend is in the wrong direction, that our moral values are getting worse. Um, you know, another report by Barna said a majority of American adults across age group, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, and political ideology 
expressed concern about the nation's moral condition. Eight out of ten people surveyed by Barna said our moral condition is bad. I mean, think about it. Uh, moral standards of sexuality. Let's just start there. That's in the news every day. Adultery and fornication are the least of our problems anymore. Society now insists that you can have sex with whoever, or by the way, whatever you want, whenever you want. It's the whole gender surrender movement. Uh, pedophilia, satanic ritual abuse, bestiality, child sex trafficking, you name it. Either it's already legal and morally accepted, or, or it's well on its way to getting there. You, know, you wonder why nothing ever happens with all of these clear smoking gun evidences of this dark underworld of satanic ritual abuse that uh, the, the movie uh, that just came out exposes, and many others. I've been sounding the alarm on it for years. I have a whole chapter on it in Volume 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist called The Gender Surrender Movement. Um, it's because the people that we count on to hold people accountable are the ones doing it. <laughs> so if you're holding your breath for you know, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and John Podesta and all these people to get arrested by some white hats who come in and win the day, quit holding your breath. You'll die before that happens. It's not going to happen. Not until Christ comes back. Um, moral standards of economics are gone. We've got socialism, communism, corporate fascism all over the place. There's no moral compass when it comes to our uh, economy. And it's all very confusing, too. Um, you know, you know the, the whole fake right-left paradigm that I exposed in Volume 1 of Spirit of the Antichrist really has done a number on people. And, you know, the same people on the right of the spectrum, the Republicans, the conservatives, who say, oh, these lazy homeless people, they won't even lift a finger, don't give them any handouts, they ought to work for their job, and they're just lazy bums. Well, turn around the next day and bail out the banks, the automakers, the home industry, the mortgage companies, all of that. You know, I guess it only is wrong if it's one person at a time, but if you do it in groups, it's okay, right? It just shows you that both sides are really singing the same tune. Moral standards of honesty and integrity, completely gone. Cheating, plagiarism, deception are at all-time highs. People now lie for sport instinctively, even when they don't really have to lie and don't even know they're lying. It's kind of like what Jesus said about Satan. Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie, uh, John 8, 44. When he speaks, he speaks from his own resources. He's, he's a liar and the father of lies. Uh, we no longer evaluate candidates for public office based upon their moral compass. When's the last time that was an issue at a debate on Fox News or CNN? <laughs> I mean, these days, any reality TV star will do, regardless of his moral worldview. We don't even ask the question anymore. And, and then we've got selective moral outrage, where we punish the righteous for honest mistakes, but look the other way when powerful elites engage in wanton, treasonous, and felonious actions. Judges and grand juries are bought and paid for all across this land. Not all of them, but far more than you think. Evidence is fabricated. Justice is elusive. And it's not so much that this is new, because I mean, you can go back to the first half of the 20th centuries, and there were corrupt cops. You know, most cops in Chicago back in the 40s and 50s carried throwdown guns in their 
backpack. And if they ever, you know, shot somebody that was acting up, they'd pull that throwdown gun out, put it down beside him and say, he had a gun. Very common, very well documented. Books been written about that. Uh, they do the same thing now. It's only more sophisticated, right? They'll plant evidence on you like that. Morality is absolutely declining. It's a different country today. We have a rise in crime. We have a worsening of the kinds of crimes, more serious, more intense, bloody. And then there's the whole fight for the sanctity of life, which was a complete head fake. It has been all along. Uh, if you've ever read the book by uh, Greg Jackson and Steve Dace called We Won't Be Fooled Again, it exposes a lot of key con so-called conservative members in the in the uh, you know political world and the conservative movement uh, that were allegedly fighting for the sanctity of life, but in reality didn't give a hoot about it, and and it was always a head fake. It was never about what it was about. It was never about the fact that life begins at conception and that every human being is made in the image of God, and every human being is innocent and deserves the right to live. I mean, we're born spiritually dead, yes, but we're, we're not worthy of being murdered. Uh, and life begins at conception. And we spent, you know, what, uh, 73 to 23, if I can do the quick math, 70 years, right? Did I do that right? 30, 27, no, 50 years, anyway. Ever since Roe v. Wade is what I'm trying to get at. Sorry, I was public schooled, so you'll forgive me. Uh, uh, you know, fighting over, you know, viability and, you know, how many months along is it okay to murder your child? Well, here's a novel thought. How about never? <laughs> never okay, you know. Uh, because, you know, if that's the standard, then as I talked about here in January at Plum Creek Chapel, who's to say we're not going to kill 10-year-olds? And they're already doing it in places like Canada and Holland and places like that. Someone's mentally ill, I'll just kill them. Someone's got, you know, a limp or some other ailment, we'll just kill them, right? They're, they're just useless, like you all know what Harari says. And so we have this head fake, and they convince everybody that finally we've overthrown Roe v. Wade. No, we didn't. What the Dodds decision did was permanently enshrine the fact that unborn children have no constitutional rights in this country. That's what the Dodds decision did. Go back and look at it. The Constitution could not be more clear that the states only have the right to make decisions that are not expressly already decided in the Constitution. The Constitution expressly says that all human beings have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when the Supreme Court Con completely controlled, by the way, says, no, 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 they're, they're not, we don't have any say on that. We're going to leave it up to the states. You know, unborn children have no constitutional rights, so therefore it's a state's rights issue. And all they did was kick it down to the states, and now it's a matter of where can you kill your child, not if. The Supreme Court says you can kill them. If your state says it's okay, it's okay with us. It's a horrible decision. What the Supreme Court should have done, if they were following the Constitution, is says this is a no-brainer. Roe v. Wade never should have happened. Children are children from the moment of conception. It doesn't matter how big they are, you know. As I've said many times, if you leave it alone, it comes out a baby every time. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. And, and, and therefore, they have 
they are protected like you and I are under the Constitution. But this is, if the Lord tarries is coming, this is just the beginning of those types of rulings. If they can claim the unborn don't have constitutional rights, they can turn right around and claim the infirm don't have constitutional rights. Or the mentally ill don't have constitutional rights. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they've, they've been talking about how you can pass laws to uh, in some states to abort your child up to a week after birth. Yeah. Oh, there's no question. As I talk about in, in Volume 2, which came out just after the Dodds decision, I went back in and, and wrote in you know several pages about that. Uh, there's no question that all across this country, uh, the Big Pharma has uh, representatives at the abortuaries, many of them, like University of Pittsburgh, for example, was a well-known case, uh, standing by to take these aborted babies while they're still hot and fresh, and in some cases while the beat heart is still beating, and then cut out their organs to use in experiments. You know. So, yeah, no question about it. Uh, morality is definitely on the decline. Trees and animals are valued more highly than humans. Um, with the big uh, green movement, I heard someone call it, say late recently that we've been greenwashed. You've heard about being whitewashed? Well, this is a big greenwash. That's really what it is. So, uh, what does the Bible say? Well, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So morality, uh, that's one example of the decline of America. Then let's talk about the economy. Uh, we went from being the largest creditor nation to the largest debtor nation almost overnight by design. Um, you know, I had uh, David McIlvaney on here recently, and he really educated our listeners at Not By Works Ministries about some of the key moments in the history of our economy. But it all, as with everything else, hinges on that turn of the 20th century, the early 1900s. That's when, as I explained in my books, the Luciferians decided that no, come what may, they were going to take control of this great country and bring it to its knees. So the income tax was ratified February 3rd, 1913. Taft had put that forward in 1909. They started the income tax. Once they had that in place, later that year in a secret meeting on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, the, a few congressmen met and enacted the Federal Reserve December 23rd, 1913. And then after World War II, you had the Bretton Woods Agreement, which was negotiated by 44 countries after World War II, uh, you know, held in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. That's why they call it the Bretton Woods Agreement. Um, it also established the International Monetary Fund, that goes back to Bretton Woods and on July 22, 1944. But essentially, uh, the agreement was under Bretton Woods that gold would be the basis for the U.S. dollar and other currencies throughout the world will all be pegged to the U.S. dollar. That's what gave us our economic dominance, and, and as I talked about a moment ago. Uh, but the Bretton Woods system came crashing down, uh, even though it's still propped up uh, when Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. I've mentioned this before, but go back to 1971 in your mind's eye and pretend you rented a safe deposit box. And let's say you decided in that day, in that moment, to put two $20 bills and an ounce of gold, a one-ounce bar, in that safe deposit box on that day. 
in that day, an ounce of gold was worth about $40, two $20 bills. Well, if you were to go back today to that safe deposit box, open it up, pull out those two $20 bills, they'd be worth $40, although because of inflation, they wouldn't buy nearly as much as $40 would have bought in 1971, but they haven't changed their value in terms of their face value is $40. That one ounce of gold that was $40 is now almost $2,000. That's the problem with taking the U.S. off of the gold standard. We're $32.5 trillion in debt. Today, we'll never pay that back. It's physically impossible. You cannot come up with a scenario to pay that back. Um, the BRICS nations, uh, as Randy and I have been talking about, and, and Leo Homan and I talked about this yesterday, are expanding. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but uh, they're planning to create their own means of exchange backed by gold. The BRICS nations, if you don't know, are Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, B-R-I-C-S. But they're 40, I think it's 43, uh, I think Randy said 41, Leo said 43, I didn't look it up, but somewhere in that neighborhood, uh, 41 nations that are uh, collaborating with the BRICS nations to come up with their own monetary system backed by gold. So it really is, in our country, a house of cards. They, it took them time, took them several decades to get us to this point, which is what they wanted from their perspective. But now they've got us right where they want us, and they're just waiting for all the other pieces of the New World Order system to fall into place so that they can flick that first card at the bottom of the house of cards, and the whole system economically comes crashing down. In fact, I just to leave you with a mental picture. Watch this 27, uh, 22 second uh, video here, just to picture what's going to happen when they're ready to bring our economy down. 12,500 playing cards here. It won't take long. And the repercussions and the ripple effect are going to be out there felt all across the world. And that's exactly what they want. You know, when people can't buy bread to feed their family, when people don't have a job, that's part of the AI movement right now that's happening much faster than people think about. Just listen to my discussions with, uh, about technology with Shane on our podcast. Um, so, you know, we are, the financial system in the United States is surprisingly intertwined at every level. It's not just about inflation. It's not just about banks and the stock market and the commodities market. And these, it's all kind of intertwined and it's all controlled and it's all teetering on the brink of destruction. And when they're ready, they'll bring it down. So the key if I can just insert here a solution that we, we talk a lot about at our ministry, is self-sufficiency. You just cannot depend anymore on the system, whatever that system is, whether it's government funding, whether it's, you know, government protection, whether it's the electric grid, whether whatever it is, you can, whether it's the municipalities and, and water sources, you cannot depend on that. It's okay to use it for now, but you better have a plan B, you know, and as I've said many times, and as we've said in our 12-page uh, preparedness document, 
four things you need to focus on are food, water, shelter, and uh, personal protection. Uh, really in that order, you know. Um, you know, you, you've got you to gotta have, you got to think through these things. All the what ifs. What if the economy crashes and I'm left fending for myself? You know, there was a time in this country when people could do that. They didn't have, remember, I started out in the early 20th century with income tax. You know, people say, oh, we have to have an income tax to support our army. Well, what did they do from 1776 to 19, uh, what did I say, oh, Oh, 1913, yeah, February 1913, same year the Federal Reserve came out. What did we do? It wasn't about an in, it wasn't about building an army. I mean, it, it was in a way about building an army that they could then take over, but it was it was about control and and and, and taxation. And that's why even if you own your house, you don't really own your house. Stop paying your property taxes and see how quickly you get to keep that house. You just rent your house, right? Um, so. You know, we've got to learn to be self-sufficient. Back in the pioneer days, they, they they could pull all their belongings in a wagon, set up camp on a homestead somewhere. They killed their own food. They baked their own you know meals. They set up, they built their own houses. They were self-sufficient. They dug their own wells. This goes all the way back to the ancient times. You know, think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the whole concept of digging wells. A person's wealth was determined by how deep their well was. And how many wells they had, because water is so central to life. So you have to think about self-sufficiency. Uh, so we talked about morality, the economy. Let's talk about the military. Is America declining? Absolutely no question about it. Uh, our military, this woke agenda, the LGBTQ agenda, that really just in, in the last 10 years or so has become a thing, uh, I mean, it was, it's part of their plan. It's been rolled, been rolled out incrementally. You know, you can think back during the Clinton uh, presidency, you know, the whole don't ask, don't tell thing. So they were conditioning us. But this is not the only way that our military uh, is in decline. We've got a lack of principled leadership. We've got black ops all over the place now. Uh, we've got CIA-led color revolutions, which are often use branches of the military to accompany them. We've got indiscriminate drone warfare. We've got chemical and biological weapons. Don't forget, COVID was manufactured in Fort Detrick. Now, if you go to Snopes, they'll tell you, no, 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 that's, a, that's not true. That's a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it's a conspiracy, all right, but it's not a theory. Um, you've got, well, don't forget, by the way, the U.S.-run chemical weapons plants. What was there, 20 of them in Ukraine? So, I mean, all kinds of chemical and biological stuff. Just read the chapter in my book. I don't remember which volume it is, but I give all of the examples, uh, many examples, I should say, of America experimenting on its own citizens. And then we've got forced vaccinations. You've got incentivized abortions in the military. You all realize that? That's been in the news a lot lately uh, because one senator is trying to get them to change that. But if you're in the, if you serve in the military, and you want an abortion, and where you live doesn't allow it, uh, they will pay your way to go to another state, like a lot of corporations will as well. So I, I wanted to get Alan's uh, to just take a couple of minutes here and give us some of his thoughts on the changes. He just retired from the Air Force. Uh, and uh, and so to use this mic so that everybody can hear you uh, on the live stream. And we finally have got our...
technology thanks to CJ. Now we can hear you in the room and we can hear you on the live stream as well. But uh, you've been, you served our country in the military long enough um, to see some pretty dramatic changes. Am I right? Served, uh, Hold the mic up to your 26 years. All right. Tell us, give us your perception on what has changed and how quickly it's changed. Well, I joined the uh, Marine Corps in December of 1996. And uh, one of the main focuses of our military was to be the most lethal force or fighting force in the world. And for the better part of 20 years, that's what the military's focus was. Within the last few years, um, the military has kind of shifted into what they like to call inclusivity or, or inclusive. Um, and so they are starting to become more open with things that uh, we would consider a mental condition when I came in. Um, homosexuality was a mental condition. If you wanted to dress up as a woman, uh, to be a cross-dresser or you wanted to um, be a transvestite or whatever, you had a mental condition and they sent you to get help. Um, also, I think we talked, we talked about this earlier, but um, when I came in, um, adultery, if, even if you weren't married and you slept with a man or a woman that was married, you could lose your career. You would be discharged out of the military. Mm. Um, the military, um, whenever I, you know, rose my hand and uh, I took the oath and I re-enlisted each reenlistment, they always, you know, at the very end of that, um, we always said, so help me God. Now there's an option okay. where you don't have to say that. And there have been many people that have moved away from that. Um, so, you know, that, that had a lot of um, weight on me staying in the military. I mean, I was up for E9, which is Chief Master Sergeant. It was uh, the, the highest rank in the, in the enlisted military ranks. And, um, I chose to pass on it because the military is putting senior leaders um, in a situation that is going to be in contradiction to what you believe. So as a, as a Christian, you have to be supportive of um, the homosexual, um, the, the, the communities. You have to be open to the inclusivity. I had to teach a class one time, and uh, I went completely against what they gave me. and everybody in the room was, we're all on the same sheet of music. And, and, and there's a, you know, the vast majority of military members out there now, it's being forced. Um, so when I retired, and, and you were at my retirement, um, that weekend was so busy because there were so many people that were retiring. Yeah. And the mindset was, it's time. And I, and I, I think I told you this, I, I felt like um, I was being pushed because it, it's, it was time to leave Sodom because that is yeah. where I think our military is going. And I think, you know, when you abandon your morality, um, I didn't want to be in a situation that was going to put me in danger to pull me away from my family. Um, and, and you the, served beside at times in, in terms of, you know, different when you were doing your weekend exercises and things like that, you, you found yourself at times interacting with uh, transgendered, people right oh, yeah 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 you, you have to um and the more vocal you are about it then the more prone you are to, to probably get in trouble and, and and i was talked to um once actually a couple of times and and that's that's kind of where i felt like you know it, it's time time, it to, time go. For me to go yeah 
Well, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, you can just hang on to that, uh, Mike, and we'll grab it when we do questions here in a minute. But what I, what I want to add to that is that his experience, and you notice how he said most of the people have the same mindset as him. You know, it's just a small minority that's this view is being pushed on everybody, and then they're recruiting people that have that same worldview, and it's it's bringing down our military by design. This isn't just the natural ebb and flow of the depravity of man. That's part of it. That makes it easier. But this is an intentional effort on the part of the Luciferians to weaken our military. Leo Holman and I talked about that yesterday on the program, you know, how, you know, Russia, China, they're not enlisting transvestites to serve in the military over there. Not at all. Uh, so you've got, you know, you've got, it's so obvious that this, this LGBTQ plus, 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 whatever movement is intended to, to bring us down. Um, and so the last evidence, I think, or category that I want to focus on before we take questions in terms of is our country in decline? And, and I wish we had more time to really dive further into the whole military thing, but the bottom line is our, our top brass in the military are all woke. They are, they are buying into this uh, philosophy. Uh, there was a time when they saw this coming and there was a, a great purge of conservative, patriotic, principled leadership in the military, particularly back during the Obama administration, but it continues on. They had another purge when it came to the gene-altering bioinjections and how they forced those on the military. Of course, now that the pharmaceutical industry has admitted that that's killing people, the military backed off and no longer requires it, but they did not go back and apologize and re-enlist and give people the opportunity to re-enlist who were forced out because they, they, on principle, wouldn't take the shot. Uh, so that just shows you right there the hypocrisy of it all. But this is, you know, this is all coming to a head right now, which to me is one of the signs of the times. Remember, think of the, the outline here, if you can picture it in your head, is that these are geopolitical signs leading toward a one-world system, which means there's got to be a war. If that's going to happen, they got to weaken America. Are we seeing signs that America is weakening? Yes, economically, militarily. Uh, morally, and also in terms of our liberty, in terms of our liberty. Abraham Lincoln, who himself was no friend of liberty at times, if you know the true history about Abraham Lincoln, but he was right when he said this, that America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will be because we destroyed ourselves. And indeed, we are willingly laying down our freedoms. Uh, we we allow the the Luciferians to employ the what they call the Hegelian dialectic, this, uh, you know, crisis reaction solution uh, where they cause some type of crisis that we are afraid of, and then they get us predictably to say, save me from the boogeyman. And so they're not holding a gun to our head to say, you know, put, you know, all these cameras up on the streets and put these cameras and microphones in your house and no, no one's being forced to do that. We're doing it ourselves. But what are some ways that the cancel culture uh, is, I mean, that the that our liberties are being taken away? Well, cancel culture, right off the top of the bat. I mean, uh, you can't, you know, you can't have a voice in the media if you have any principled biblical standards. Fake news, the fact checkers, political correctness, hate speech, 
restrictions on travel. I was talking about the naked body scanners back right after I woke up at 17 years ago and how they were causing cancer uh, at more multiple times more than the national rate. That's why they eventually pulled them out after a class action suit at Logan Airport by the early TSA agents there because they were all getting cancer. So they pulled them out and then they went to these ones that unzip your DNA, the little tubular ones where you stand in there and you go like this and they do that. Don't ever do it. Don't ever go into a naked body scanner, ever if you can help, especially if you're sick, elderly, pregnant. It's deadly. And that's by design. Um, facial recognition now is a big thing at... Uh, uh, Airports, warrantless checkpoints, warrantless searches, all of the Bill of Rights, you know, you just tick them off one at a time. They're all just out the window being being shredded. I talk about civil forfeiture in the book, but this is from uh, uh, July 11th today. In Someone sent this to me. Wyoming is the 43rd state now to have launched AI-powered mass surveillance. Let me just read to you what this article says that this just should be eye-opening to how fast we have become a full-spectrum global surveillance state. It really is a prison planet. Cameras using automated license plate recognition, or ALPR, technology can scan passing cars, capture license plate numbers, makes and models, colors, and identifying markers such as bumper stickers or broken taillights. And then they can use artificial intelligence in real time to break this data down into searchable queries and match them against the FBI's National Crime Information Center, the NCIC. If there's a match, then you're going to get pulled over instantly. Cameras like these feed into a centralized mass network owned by the manufacturer, Flock Safety. Uh, and Flock Safety uh, is also the company that years ago uh, created, uh, manufactured the device known as Raven, which a lot of major metropolitan areas have. I'm sure they have them in Denver, which are these audio devices built into uh, telephone poles around the city that can tell if a shot's fired and triangulated and send the police. So if they hear a shot go off, they can send uh, the police there. Uh, and not just gunshots, it can recognize breaking glass, sawing metal, screeching tires. Uh, but uh, this uh, company, uh, is now has these ALPR cameras in over 2,000 cities and 43 states. Uh, they can also, interestingly enough, and this is happening, be purchased by private entities, individuals, businesses, schools are installing these. HOAs are installing these. So they can spy on every car that comes through the neighborhood and tie it into a database and tell you everything about you. Hundreds of HOAs are reportedly using these. Um, uh, in other parts of the world, this technology is being used not just to, quote, fight crime, uh, but it's being used to enforce climate mandates, which is coming to a city near you here. Uh, for example, in the U.K., automatic number plate recognition, as they call it, instead of ALPR, it's ANPR, are placed in so-called uh, ULEZ zones, or ultra-low emission zones, where only low emissions vehicles, electric cars, are allowed to drive. And cars that go into that zone that don't meet that criteria are spotted by these cameras and are charged a daily fee that is automatically deducted from your bank account because you drove in an area that you should. Uh, it's just, it's right out of Orwell's 1984. Um, 
but you know we've got i mentioned civil forfeiture i got to tell you this uh anybody familiar with civil forfeiture you need to be read my book and in that section about the power that the luciferians are trying to con use to institute their control get but that's basically when the police pull you over and they take everything you got uh, you're guilty until proven innocent they don't have to prove it but here's one example uh a 24-year-old college student named Charles Clark checked a bag at the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport, parked himself in a chair near the boarding gate. Having just visited relatives, he was in high spirits, ready to go home to Florida. But his day took an unexpected turn. Two uniformed men, an airport police detective and a local Drug Enforcement Administration officer, approached, by Clark, approached Clark and corralled him into a fluorescent back room. His checked bag, checked bag, sat on the table. One of the men turned to him and grunted, this smells like marijuana. Now, there was no marijuana in the bag, mind you, at all. It just smelled like it to this officer. So they felt like they had probable cause to open the suitcase. Well, in it, they found buried between his T-shirts $11,000 in cash that was essentially his life savings. He had earned it over five years of hard work at fast food restaurants and retail outlets. By the way, I... Well, I probably shouldn't say that. A lot of people travel with a lot of cash. It's just a good thing to do. You never know what trouble you're going to run into. If the grid goes down, you're going to need cash. Uh, so now having cash is a crime. Uh, and he was planning to use that $11,000 to pay his tuition fees back in Florida. But officers didn't believe his story. Based solely on the fact that they thought his bag smelled like weed, they assumed the $11,000 was from drug trafficking and seized it, and he never got it back. That happens all the time. Under the umbrella of civil forfeiture, officers of the law confiscate millions of dollars in cash from thousands of individuals like Charles every year. They need no proof that the money was obtained illegally or used in any crime. They don't need to even file a criminal charge. The law for civil forfeiture literally flips the American justice system on its head making the burden of proof upon the innocent. And if you can't prove that that money is yours and legitimate, they're just going to take it. Using cash that is unjustly seized from Americans, police departments all across the country buy firearms, SWAT gear, flat screen TVs, and a slew of other goods that they deem to be an essential uh, part of their uh, needs. Between 1985 and 1993, authorities confiscated $3 billion with a B, dollars worth of cash, cars, boats, jets, and real estate under civil forfeiture laws. And they never have to give it back. In the vast majority of these cases, there was never any cr criminal charges brought, no evidence of wrongdoing. Police simply used their own judgment. By the way, going back to the fake left-right paradigm, the Reagan administration was the one championing these civil forfeiture laws. And one White House attorney smugly told the press, quote, it's now possible for a drug dealer to serve time in a forfeiture-financed prison after being arrested by agents driving a forfeiture-financed automobile while working in a forfeiture-financed sting operation. In other words, we're going to steal all this money under civil forfeiture, then we're going to use it to fight crime. But since only a presumption of guilt is necessary, it's not unusual for innocent people, often minorities, by the way, to be legally robbed. Um, unbelievable. Uh, one uh, retailer's uh, 
had his safe broken into. They stole $120,000 uh, from his, I think it was a bike shop, if I remember right. Um, never charged with a crime. They just needed a hunch that something fishy was going on. Uh, and uh, they stole his money and never gave it back. So, yeah, our freedoms, you know, the land of the free, forget it. Not just simply not true anymore. Liberty's under attack in all fronts. Social media tracking, the whole see something, say something is right out of Orwell. It's right out of Nazi Germany. You know, they, they really ramped that up after they started the homeland security, which is a term borrowed from Nazi Germany after 9-11. Uh, and they had that campaign, remember, see something, say something. So you'd have a, you know, innocent old fella, you know, cleaning a shotgun in his, in his garage. And the door's open because it's a nice day and the breeze is blowing. Some nosy neighbor calls the police. A SWAT team shows up and arrests the guy because he has a shotgun. They'll arrest first, ask questions later. See something, say something. In many parts of the country, you can't have gardens, especially in major metropolitan areas. You can't dig your own well. You can't have your own private water source. They're confiscating private wells. You can't have outbuildings. You can't tear, you cut down trees if you want, even though you own the property. And of course, we've got all kinds of gun restrictions, not gun rights, but gun restrictions. Um, eminent domain, we could go on and on. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, we are seeing a dramatic decline in America, which is setting the stage for this uh, geopolitical war that's coming to usher in the one world system. So I know I went a little bit longer, uh, but I'll take a few questions here if uh, you have, if you've got one. And be sure and speak right into the mic. Everybody here will be able to hear you and the folks uh, watching online. Anybody with a comment or a question? Here we go. Explain the fort that you said where COVID was initiated. Yeah. I forget um, what the name of it was. Freedom. Fort Dietrich in Maryland. Dietrich. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they, there's all kinds of ties uh, between Fort Dietrich and the Wuhan bioweapons lab. Um, I actually, this is really bizarre, uh, but it goes back to the whole genesis of my Spirit of the Antichrist books. But in late 2019, I began preparing to speak at a conference in the spring of 2020 in Tulsa. Um, if I got the years right, Wendy, that's right. Right, COVID hit America in 2020. Yeah, and so uh, and I was calling it Spirit of the Antichrist, and I had I was going to have seven points in my presentation at this big prophecy conference. And in the process, late in 2019, it was when, uh, right after Event 201, by the way, uh, that you had the break breakout of what became known as COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. And there was a guy interviewed in an obscure news article who claimed at the time, this was way before it had crossed the ocean and come to America, way before anybody knew about COVID, way before the pandemic and the vaccines and all that. He said, oh yeah, that, that's a, uh, you know, uh, a bioweapon that was first created with government funding in Fort Detrick in Maryland. And I actually had a slide created to talk about this just as a passing example of, you know, biological warfare that I was going to mention as part of the Luciferian conspiracy. Had no idea where it was headed. Well, then fast forward, the pandemic happens, everything's shut down, the conference is canceled. Uh, I end up deciding to do more research, turn it into a book that became a two-book series, and so on and so forth. But yeah, it's it's the the media is going to tell you, oh, that's a that's fake news. It's not true. But 
there's all kinds of people out there sounding the alarm, including the guy that's known as the father of the modern bioweapons industry, was the one who claims that this was came from Fort Detroit. And then there's a whole Fauci connection, funding the gain of uh, gain of function research and all of that. Anybody else? Yes, uh, we got the mic up here, up here, and then we'll go back here. Um, you talked about being prepared to be self-sufficient. Um, the the CBDC when that rolls out, when it rolls out. Um, like my in-laws, she asked me to ask this for you tonight. She loves you. She's a huge fan. She watches you from Grand Junction. All right. Tell um, her yeah. So she, um, you know, for her, she said, you know, loves the Lord, Christian, but, you know, they're on fixed income now. They're retired. You know, like what, what, and so, and something in that situation, like you talked about property taxes and all these things that are going to be probably connected to, you know, what, what does someone in that situation, she's like, what do we do? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think you've got to do all that you can until they absolutely put a gun to your head and make you do it. You know, they may try to make you pay your property taxes using some form of digital transaction. Don't do it. Go down to the office with a bag of cash or, or cashier's check or something and say, look, I'm, I'm willing to pay. You know, and, and most of the time you can resolve it that way because it's not a tightly controlled conspiracy. Usually, if you try hard enough, you can find a sympathetic person on the other side of the counter that's going to say, okay, look, I'll, I'll credit your account. You know, I think we're a long way, and I've been saying this for a while, even with all the teaching I've done about the CBDCs, I've been consistent from the beginning. I don't think in America, even with the Fed now that's rolled out, it's rolled out exactly like I predicted it would be, just a few banks. Most banks aren't even in on it yet. Uh, I saw a list of the ones that have signed up on it, and even though it's now being rolled out. It, I just don't think it's going to trickle down to the average user in a compulsion sense, in a, in a compulsory sense, you know, for a long time. Now, it may come to that. And at, at some point, you may have to suffer for doing the right thing. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that eventuality just yet. Um, you know, it's the same thing with Social Security and some of the other uh, government funding. Um, I just... Again, there are too many people that would cause too much of a uproar. They're not going to just do that yet. They will get there eventually, hopefully after the rapture, as part of the global uh, system. And I mentioned this last night in my podcast that, you know, this ultimate system is a global digital ID system, but they've got, it's kind of like um, the illustration I used last night is, it's kind of like when you put out your Christmas lights, right? So if you if you have Christmas lights all over your yard, you'll put out you know some over here. You'll kind of plug them in at first. Yeah, they're all working. Let's make sure they're working. Then you start putting out some more, and you you make sure that section's working. But you're kind of stringing them together, and eventually, when you got everything the way you want it, and you've checked every section, then you plug them all into a master plug, and the whole thing lights up. Well, that's what they're doing right now with digital ID. They've got the driver's license in the U.S., which is not a driver's license; it's a national ID card. They've got other countries rolling out similar things. They've got vaccine passports. They've got uh, CBDCs and FedNow. They've got all these digital things. Eventually, when they're ready, kind of like the House of Cards, they're going to plug them all in together, and it's going to be a global system. I hope that doesn't happen until after the rapture, but uh, let's not borrow trouble. Let's just keep on as far as the CBDCs. As far as other preparedness items, even if you're on a fixed income, you can buy 
inexpensive canned food. You know, you can buy bags of rice and beans, dry beans. Uh, you don't have to buy expensive uh, long-term storable food. That's If you have the money, that's the easiest way. Just stock up. But you can, every time you go to the grocery store, buy a few extra cans and just think about the what-ifs. What if I couldn't leave my house for six months? What would I eat? And, you know, think about growing a garden. Think about water source. Uh, if you if you don't have a water source on your property, find the nearest one and get a Berkey filter and, and be able to go take buckets and get water. you got to have water. So that preparedness guide that we provide, which is totally free, uh, really goes into a lot of those scenarios to help you think through it. But fear is the enemy. We don't want to be afraid. That's what they want us to do. So don't be afraid of things that could happen, probably will happen, but not for a long time. Do what you can now. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. Jim. Well, considering you've depressed me. I've depressed you? <laughs> Get this through my head. But um, I was listening to your podcast, I believe, from last night. One of the ladies asked, uh, about the parallels of the seven days of creation and then God's timeline as it relates to 7,000 years and we're at around 6,000 years. And then you had mentioned uh, the verse in Second Peter 3 about a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And you don't align with that necessarily uh, because you have to allegorize that. And I'm trying to reconcile that in my mind with regard to it follows up with, you know, the day of the Lord is the next section right. spoken about. So just trying to get some. Yeah, so what he's referring to is there are a lot of people, and I've actually had a guest on my program that proposed, that espoused this view, uh, that suggests that God's plan of the ages is 7,000 years based on, you know, seven being the perfect number. And that, you know, we had uh, you know, 2,000 years until... Uh, Abraham, and then we had 2,000 years of Israel, then we have 2,000-year church age, and then we have a 1,000-year millennium, and then at the end of that, the old earth is destroyed. That's the 7,000 years. And so then they extrapolate from that that since we're coming up on 2,000 years since Christ's resurrection and the birthday of the church in 33 AD, that we must be getting close to the end of the church age or the rapture. So I'm very intrigued by that concept. I think it's it's theologically intriguing, and it could be, but you absolutely cannot get there exegetically from scriptures. The Second Peter passage from it, it's a simple figure of speech using like or as. All Peter is saying there is these naysayers, these mockers that are mocking people that are looking for the Lord's return, and they're out there saying, "Oh, why are you still looking? You know, all these years it's never happened." He 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 uses a simile saying. You need to remember, basically, God's timetable is not yours. To the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. It's another simile used in the Hebrew language, and I think it's Psalm 90, same idea. But that is by no means a technical formula that somehow means every time we see day in Scripture, we should think in terms of a thousand years. People use those verses to try to show that the earth is millions of years old and the six days of creation were really 6,000-year time spans and we all crawled out of a cave over thousands and millions of years. So no, no, that that's all I'm saying is that that passage in Second Peter has nothing to do with creating a formula by which we interpret all time. In the context, he's just saying to you folks that are 
poo-pooing the concept that Christ is going to come back because you said people have been saying that forever. Don't forget, God knows what he's doing. He's not thinking like that. That's all. But I'm not opposed to the concept, and it's very intriguing to me, and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think the rapture is going to happen, I, I mean, probably in the next five years. I really believe that. And uh, I could be wrong. And six years from now, I'll be the first one to say, I, I was wrong. We're still here. But all signs point to a soon coming of the Lord. Uh, all kinds of signs. That's what I've written about in the two-volume series. So to that extent, for different reasons, I kind of like the whole 7,000-year model. I just can't prove it biblically. That's all. All right, we got time for one more if there is one. Yep, up here. Maybe two more. I can't turn you down. Plus, you pre-registered for your question before we started. Okay, this has to do with the um, the Luciferians and their uh, the climate change agenda that they're pushing. So we know a lot of things that they're saying, like you know, carbon dioxide is bad for the earth. Well, the earth needs that. Plants need that. We need that. Um, do the Luciferians, do they really believe the things they're saying, or do they know that the climate change is a lie, but they're just pushing it? Oh, that's a great question. So... It depends on what level. At the top level, they are deceiving the world. They're working at the behest of Satan, and they're perpetuating these lies. Uh, I'm talking about the leaders. But down the line, a lot of the pawns in the game, they really believe what they're preaching. And I think uh, someone potentially like John Kerry or Al Gore, they may really have believed the lie of the fake pseudoscience. And by the way, a lot of the scientists really believe. I talked to one one time in Alaska who was, uh, back then I had written my first book on this subject. Uh, it was called The Great Last Day's Deception, came out in 2012, and I talk about one of the big lies being the climate, uh, global warming is what it was called back then. And this guy just didn't like the book because of that one thing. He said, oh, no, no, global warming's weird. He was, it was real. He's a scientist. So I think in the same way that a lot of medical doctors graduate with medical degrees and they bought into the lie of Western medicine, uh, a lot of scientists have bought into it. So depends who you're talking about. At the top level, I think they know it's a lie that they're perpetuating. But down the line, people really do believe. A lot of these uh, uh, people that give money, what do you call them, philanthropists, these wealthy billionaires that give money to green causes, they wouldn't do that if they didn't really believe it. So it's not a... It's not everyone's part of the conspiracy. Some people are just deceived. Yeah, yeah, and that's true of, of a lot of subjects. All right, right over here, last, uh, last question. Thank you. I have a question on Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two, and it was when Jesus uh, died on the cross and the veil was torn top to bottom. 52 says, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And in your chart book, it says that the Old Testament believers, the immaterial goes to heaven, the material goes to the grave. So who are these people that are getting bodies sooner than, and why yeah, are they walking is... Jerusalem? This is that token resurrection that happened with a few graves around Jerusalem at the time Christ rose from the dead. Um, it's, a, it's an anomaly. It's not part of God's, you know, script here as we see on the screen with when different people groups will be resurrected. 
And by the way, these this is just one of hundreds of charts that we have in our uh, chart book, uh, or more than a hundred of the of the most common ones that I use in my messages. Uh, so we only know what the text just tells us. Uh, but uh, while there are exceptions, when God chooses to make exceptions, like Lazarus is an exception, right? Uh, the, we know that, and uh, by and large, all Old Testament believers, Daniel, Moses, Abraham, Jacob, David, they will be resurrected when Christ comes back to set up the throne. Uh, now, they're already in heaven, you know, but their bodies, this is talking about the physical bodies, because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, Paul said. So every human being that's a believer will have to have a glorified body ultimately in the eternal state. When do we get that glorified body? The text tells us. For Old Testament believers, it's at Christ's second coming. For us, it's at the rapture. Uh, the dead in Christ rise first. If you're uh, if died by the time the rapture happens and you're a believer, then you're, you'll get your body then. Uh, don't ask me what kind of body you have now. You're in the presence of the Lord, no question, but you have some kind of transitional body. Uh, but you'll get your final glorified body at the rapture. For those of us who are alive and remain, we will be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15 says, so we'll be translated. We won't have a resurrection. You know, if you don't die, you don't need a resurrection. Uh, those that die during the, those believers that die during the tribulation, they're going to be resurrected at the second coming as well, and, and, and so on and so forth. So, No, I, I think they resurrected and, and lived out their days, just like Lazarus did. Yeah, yeah, it's it's bizarre. I mean, I know we can't, doesn't really fit with the normal paradigm of what normally happens, but God did a lot of things in the first century apostolic age that were bizarre. I mean, you've got shadows healing people, and you've got demons wrestling, you know, you've got all kinds of weird stuff. So this, to me, was just a foreshadowing or a foretaste of what will happen universally at the end of the age. And it's just, just a glimpse of it. In the same way that earlier in Matthew, Jesus took the disciples up in Matthew 17 on the mount, and, and he was transfigured before them, and Elijah and Moses appeared. I think he had said at the end of chapter 16, there are some of you standing here that will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Well, they didn't see the second coming, but they saw a foretaste of it in the transfiguration. So sometimes God chooses to give us just a glimpse of, of the reality. And I think that token resurrection that took place around Jerusalem is what that, what that was. But it's definitely an interesting passage for sure. All right. Well, thank you guys very much. Let me close this in prayer and we will be dismissed. Father, thank you for this time together tonight. We just pray that even though we do see things in decline, we know that uh, ultimately you're going to come back and make all things new. And what a glorious day that will be. And Lord, we pray if there's one here that uh, is listening uh, to this uh, message by podcast or watching the video and they don't know you, I pray that your spirit would just get a hold of them, convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and convicting them that they need a Savior, that they're a sinner who's lost and in need of salvation, and that they would turn to you and place their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, as the only one who could save them. We pray all of this in His name.